Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day, another chance to gather together as your children, to study your word and follow you. We thank you for the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Help us never be led astray by complications and being hyper about anything in the spiritual life, but just simply learn and follow you. And we thank you so much for your word, your spirit, the pastor you've given us, and this beautiful place to worship. Father, we ask that you bless this message, have your spirit guide the speaker, and help each of us understand the personal message you have for us this evening. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works, Part 18. Uh, first off, I want to make you aware that we have a lot of slides tonight. So you might just want to sit back and relax, uh, maybe not be as worried about, you know, turning your Bible, which we'll do some of, but not a great deal tonight, and uh, your notes, just, you know, some review, some new things, but a lot of slides. So, you know, if that helps you sit back and just take it all in, excellent. So let's start this way. This came up on Sunday, and that is that subtleties are often seen by people as no big deal. Subtleties are often seen by people as no big deal. But subtleties can be the sneakiest things that slip into our souls. So when we're taught from the pulpit about like small differences, little differences, we should be careful, I think, not to downplay them. Not to say, oh, it's no big deal. But maybe instead look at them as a key protection from deception. Because that's the stuff that Satan uses. And as Pastor mentioned on Sunday, if he can get in that little crack, the serpent will get into that just a little crack. That's all he needs. But then it, it expands everything outward in a bad way from that small mistake, let's say, or that small lie. So look at little differences, subtleties even, that the Spirit is trying to bring to our attention. Look at them as a key protection from deception. The Lord valued little things as we know. So let's start by going to Luke chapter 16 for a little reminder. Luke 16, 10. The little things were very important to the Lord. Um, and that should honestly humble us because it's easy being under grace to overlook the little things and say, ah, you know, God will forgive me, you know. And really it's a subtly arrogant attitude instead of, looking at things the way the Lord looks at things, as in Luke 16, 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. I got to tell you, I'm not going to give you this specific example, but uh, the Lord hit me over the head with this one this morning as I'm reviewing my notes. Uh, he convicted me of something, you know, when I first woke up, and I was like, ugh. All right, if you want me to act on that, show me. And then I sit down at the computer, and that's the first verse I read, which I forgot was even there in my lesson. So I'm like, okay. So the very little things can be unrighteous. And if you're unrighteous in a little, the Lord said, you'll be unrighteous in much. So it's quite a test um, that we each have to answer to the Lord for these things. Look at Luke 19:16. Luke 19, 16. The first servant appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You ought to be in authority over ten cities. So the point is, in our discussion, let's not overlook the little things as not that important. They could be key to our freedom and deliverance. So we've been discussing some subtleties in our perspective of the essence of God. On the board, when we think of God, we must think of his activities and his will as absolutely the same. 
We must also recognize that all of his attributes function synchronously at all times. Therefore, we should avoid using words like can't or must in favor of won't or desires, respectively. In other words, when we're talking about God, do we have the right to use the words can't or must? I mean, it may be a true statement theologically, but do we, as man, have the right to use those words about God? I think the main problem when we use words like can't or must when discussing God is the attitude that comes along with it. Again, this is another subtlety, a subtle form of arrogance, as though we have the right to say God can't do something or must do something. You know, so again, whether it's doctrinally true or not, that's not the point. It's more like, who are you, O oh man, to say to God? So even if we believe God's integrity must do something, is it our place to use that language? Again, it's an arrogant attitude that we could carry along with that that would be dangerous. And that's one way that we can be doctrinal snobs with our knowledge. As we've been learning from the Spirit, it's about learning to see things from God's perspective, the supernatural perspective even. Again, on the board, on the essence of God, if we observe God through a finite lens, which we do, mankind's, we often inadvertently put him into a struggle with himself. However, if we seek his perspective, we observe that it's by the very will of God that things happen. God never contends with himself. It's a very interesting statement. I mean, I, I, fa I failed in this area in the past. Maybe some of you have too, but almost pitting God's attributes against each other as though he's not in perfect harmony all the time. So God never contends with himself. He, he never has like a disagreement um, or misunderstanding. God's thoughts and ways are always in perfect harmony. And this is totally foreign to us as human beings, which is fine, which is understandable, right? We're born in the flesh. This concept is totally foreign to us as human beings, being born with a sin nature that is confused and deceived very easily. But God is never confused or deceived. He's never at a loss on what to do. Gee, what do I do in this situation? I just don't know. Let me, let me think about it for a while. It's foolish for us to think that God has to do that. His attributes are always in perfect agreement in his soul, so to speak. The Lord God is perfect and his ways are perfect, period. And he desires that we have faith in that reality about him, period. The Lord is perfect and his ways are perfect. So why should we make him contend with himself in our puny minds? Again, on the board regarding the essence of God, to say that God's grace somehow overrides his justice or vice versa is to presuppose that one of his attributes has tension with another. And this is never true. Man is the one with such internal struggles, such as in Romans 7. We mustn't ascribe such things to God. So again, God is in perfect harmony, always. Always. It's totally foreign to our thinking. For example, he doesn't have any flaws to deal with. We, we've never seen, okay, think about this. We've never seen in our lifetime anybody that was 100% perfect. Okay? Maybe when you were infatuated with somebody and you thought they were perfect for the first month you met them. All right. But you were deceived, right? We can all admit that, you know. But there's not, think about this. We've never seen perfection in this life with our eyes. Right? It's a fallen world, fallen natures, etc. So it's hard for us to um, 
I guess have faith, believe that this is God. Totally pure, perfect harmony without contradictions ever. But that's where faith comes in. So we need to see God and enjoy God as the pure, perfect spirit that he is. See God and enjoy God as the pure, perfect spirit that he is. Like we can rejoice in that without doubts, without, you know, concerns. If God doesn't know something, or, you know, there's no, no need for any type of worry like that. As human beings, it makes sense for us to struggle. Being born in sin, we've always looked at things a certain way. We've always had internal struggles. Some of us different weaknesses than others. On the board regarding the essence of man, the lens through which we view things started immediately out from the womb. How to survive, for example, in a carnal way was built into our lives from birth because of our sin nature. So it's understandable that we have trouble getting around this issue. And we don't see God perfectly in harmony all the time because it's our issue. And we look through our lens. But through the Spirit and the Word, through that divine power that He gives us, we can see things through God's lens from His perspective as long as we're humble. And a big part of the sin nature problem is that it brought us egocentrism. Egocentrism precludes its host from being objective about God. An egocentric person is an arrogant person who demands the world be known from their perspective. Objective is a good word because you know, if, if it's all about you and all you, all you can think about is your life and your viewpoint on things, well, you, you're emotionally involved, right? You're invested in yourself. And then when you're emotionally involved, you don't look at things objectively. But that's, again, why we need to step back and keep learning the Word, keep being humble, let God change our perspective so we can be objective about God and see things the way He sees things. But egocentrism is, is one of our curses that we need to uh, get over. We say as man, this is the way I see things. You should see things that way too. Don't you all do that? Come on. I mean, let's be really honest here. I do it maybe daily. I mean, really. It's very, it's, again, it can be a very subtle thing that will creep in to your soul when you, you least expect it. You don't think you're doing it. But you're like, hey, you know, this is how I'd think about this thing, so why don't they think that way about this thing? And meanwhile, everybody in this room thinks about that thing slightly different. Different angle, different perspective, different personality, different experiences, different context to our lives, right? So we're arrogant. We're egocentric, and we think everyone should look at things the way we do. And that's why it takes years of the Word and the Spirit to uh, teach us. It's just not about us. I know it's shocking. <laughs> but some of you are like, that's not possible. It has to be about me. Life isn't all about us. And you know what? That hurts to accept. It hurts the flesh. The flesh doesn't want to accept that because then it's not in control anymore. It's vulnerable. But let's be real people. Do we, need, do we need tragedies to get us to admit this? To get us to surrender to God? Or can we have uh, genuine humility? So we've all been granted the opportunity to live and be a part of life. But life is all about God and His grace and His plan. Life is not about us. It's not even our life. It's a life that's been given to us. We live, we breathe, we animate right now. We think, we see. Because God gave us this life in us, in these fleshly bodies, right? And now we can do all these wonderful things. And yet we think it's our life. As though we created it. Built it ourselves. 
really that's what we think. So we were asked on Sunday to ponder the statement that life exists. In other words, life just is. Um, it is something hard to describe. It's alive. It's, 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 it, it is. It exists. It, and with God, it, it had no beginning either. So life exists. And we're, we are a very small part of a very large symphony called life that God orchestrates as the author of all life. Here's the point the Spirit made to us on Sunday regarding life exists. Since God is eternal life, then he is the author of all life. We must concede that life pre-existed any one of us. I mean, it'd be foolish not to realize that, that life pre-existed every one of us. I mean, if you want to get down to simple, simple statements, before you were born, other people were alive, right? Your grandparents were alive before you were born. And we just can go back, but in God's viewpoint, it's totally different. He's always existed. Always existed. So he is life. And God lets us have a piece of life as a gift. So if this is true on the board... Where does that put us? How important is our viewpoint in all this? Hmm. It's a joke, right? To think we have something wise to say about life when we're not the author of it, even our own, it's, it's foolish. So God is life. He never had a beginning. That's life exists. That's, that's um, that the fact that God is a spiritual being being. Think of it as a verb. He is being right now. He's living right now. He's always been being. Well, that sounds weird, but you know what I mean? He's always been alive. And obviously that takes faith to accept, and it's wonderful. That's what gives us hope also. He is life itself. Our reminder from Solomon is worth repeating on the board in Ecclesiastes 1.9. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. We think we're so, you know, smart. We think we come up with new ideas. Here's Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, according to the scripture, saying there's nothing new under the sun. In other words, I'm nothing compared to God, to, to God's wisdom. Here I am with all this wisdom that God gave me, but it doesn't hold the candle to the truth. So we are so, so nothing, and God is so everything. There's, there's not even a way to measure that, right? Like Isaiah 55 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. There's no way to measure how much higher God's ways are than ours. His wisdom, everything. Other than to say we're nothing and he's everything. So we need to change our perspective to see God and life properly. We're the ones with the skewed perspective from the sin nature. So most of you are here humbly on a regular basis listening to the word of God because of this, you want to see things from God's perspective. You want, to, you want to stop being a slave to your egocentrism, right? And let God set you free with his perspective. And that's a wonderful reason to be here. So regarding your perspective, since life pre-exists you, your personal perspective on it cannot possibly be the source of wisdom. True wisdom is from above, given to us through the Word and the Spirit. Stubborn egocentrism frustrates our receiving such things. In other words, we get in the way. You ever hear that one before? We get in the way. I, I, me, me, 
all about me. Look, this is how I see things, so this is how it's got to be. We get in the way. That egocentrism frustrates us receiving such wonderful things as the wisdom of God and the viewpoint, the perspective of God. So think supernaturally now. Think above it all. In the big picture, we are in God's movie, in God's master program, so to speak, and we just have a bit part. That's it. And at the same time, as small as our part is in life, I mean, think of all history, okay? Human history, angelic history. As small as our part is in life and as small as this bit part is, this piece of life, if you will, that God gave us individually, as small as that is, we've been graced out and privileged just to even have that bit part. I mean, who, who are you to even be alive right now, right? Who am I that, that he decided to give me life, give me a body to live in, whatever? Who, I mean, it's, again, think big picture. Step out of your daily walk, your daily life. Who are we to even be here breathing right now? To be a part, to be, have a bit part in his grand, you know, master plan. So we've been graced out and privileged. The big picture, life is and has always been. And God has graciously granted us life in his overarching plan called life. I think God just loves sharing life. I mean, he is life. He's eternal life. And look, all, look at all the angels and all the people he's created over thousands and thousands of years. It's from him. Life is from him only as the author of all life. So it is totally a gracious gift and not our own. It still belongs to him. So we, we need to swap perspectives uh, if we want to have peace, if we want to have God's perspective and have peace. We need to drop clinging to our own perspective and cling to his perspective for all life and truth. Again, on the big picture, we need to surrender to his wisdom and sovereignty. And then we won't have to struggle with the confusion that we do. Big picture. This is kind of our, you know, our goal, if you will. We need to surrender to his wisdom and sovereignty. And then we won't have to struggle with the confusion that we do. But it takes surrendering to him as the sovereign and being content with that. You are the boss. And I'm good with that. It's not you are the boss and I really don't want to do what you tell me to do, like the teenager. Admitting their parents are their parents, but, you know, how that goes. It's surrendering. It's uh, a real surrender that is what will set us free. So it's one thing to say that we know God is sovereign. We can have that knowledge. We can, you know, quote it from the Bible even. It's another thing to surrender to him from the heart. Does that sound familiar? With all the gospel teaching? It's one thing to know God is sovereign. It's another thing to actually surrender to him as the sovereign and say, I'm good with that. You know, in fact, I'm glad you took all the pressure out of my hands. That's really the right viewpoint to have, right? Even though we think we need and have to have control and it's better to have control, it's actually better to not have control. To I mean, You don't have it anyway, right? But to give it all up and let him be the sovereign, which is not even the right words. To surrender to him as sovereign and be content with that. So we need to see life from his perspective to be set free from our own lack of faith. For example, as came out on Sunday, we humans struggle with grace and justice, for example, or grace and works, 
or love and eternal damnation. But God doesn't struggle with those things. To God, life itself is obvious. And the truth about life is obvious. His viewpoint on these things is clear and in agreement. And when we get to heaven, we're all going to totally agree with him. Because we'll fully see his perspective on everything that we go through in life. So, for example, we were asked on Sunday, how can God willingly crush someone but love them 100% at the same time? Our, our minds can't, you know, wrap around that. But I suppose if you have all wisdom and if you truly know what's best for every person, then there's no struggle. It's because we don't know what's best for ourselves, for anybody else that is going through something. We don't know. That's why it's a struggle for us. He knows everything perfectly. So he's never at odds with his decisions or what he allows because he's got the best in mind always and he has all wisdom. Again, we've never seen anybody perfect in this life. We've never seen somebody with all wisdom. So that we could say, okay, that's, that's a possible reality. And we're talking from man's perspective. But from God's perspective, everything is, is crystal clear. So, you know, how can God willingly crush someone and love them 100% at the same time? When you get to heaven, you'll find out. And that's what, we need to, that's what we need to say. That's what we need to have faith, right? That's what it's all about. We don't see the whole picture, but God does. That's why in Isaiah 53.10, that the Lord could do this to his own son. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Pleased to crush his perfect son, not his disobedient son, not the teenager that, you know, deserved it. He was pleased to crush his perfect son. It's perfect in God's perspective. And it is, it is love in the big picture. God sees the big picture perfectly. His grace knows what's best for all of us at all times. Period. Either you believe that or you don't. And trust me, I'm not speaking from, you know, I'm there more often than I want to be. That I don't admit His grace knows what's best for me at all times. That I don't um, have faith in that truth. So we don't know the big picture. We don't know it all. By grace, God crushes His own children at times, including... His own beloved son. Why? Because his grace is always sufficient. His grace is always sufficient. Even when in our opinion, his grace isn't sufficient, even when we think we can't bear something, for example, his grace is always sufficient. And he's going to get you through it, and he's going to grow you, and it's going to be painful, but you can actually bear it. Go to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, just as a reminder of this truth. And I know a lot of you are very familiar with this verse, but some, some aren't. So let's read it fresh. God's grace is always sufficient. And we have to trust in that. We have to trust in his sovereignty and his wisdom. It's really that simple. Surrender to his sovereignty and his wisdom. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he, the Lord, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected. In weakness. Most gladly, therefore, 
I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see the turning point in Paul's soul there? He goes from, you know, begging the Lord three times for it to leave. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient. And Paul's like, all right, most gladly, therefore, I'm going to boast of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. For I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses and persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Well content. Are you well content with God being the sovereign? Are you well content that he has all power and all wisdom? And are you going to rest on that? Are you going to surrender to his wisdom and sovereignty? And rest like he wants you to rest? If not, it's to our own peril, right? It's to our own pain. But that's what he's after. And some people say, you know, here's the arrogant, sophomoric thinking, right? Why do this to Paul? Why, why allow Satan to give uh, Paul a thorn in the flesh that tormented him? Wasn't Paul faithful to God? That's what the attorney would say, right? That's what the arrogant teenager would say. It was what was best for Paul. See, that's what God knows. That's what God sees, right? The whole picture. This thorn was what was best for Paul. And that's what we've been talking about, grace. Grace is what's best for you. At at first, Paul didn't agree. But then when God corrected him, Paul agreed. He's like, I'm going to be content with that. Well content. God's grace does what's best. And that's what God was doing for Paul. And just because you or I don't see it doesn't mean it's not true. It is true. He's God. (laughs) Again, it's tough for us to picture somebody with total perfect wisdom, total perfect sovereignty. So we have trouble trusting in it. But we're called to walk by faith, not by sight, right? So trust in God's sovereignty and wisdom. When's the last time you praised and gave thanks to God for what he hasn't done in your life? Think about that. When's the last time you praised and thanked God for not taking away your thorn? On your knees. I mean, really thanked him. (laughs) And you know what? That's what's going to set you free. That's what's going to set us free. When we do that thing in willing submission to him. In surrender. That's all that's going to set us free. Otherwise, we're just going to keep kicking against the pricks. The prickers, right? You want more wounds? You want more scars? You want to bleed more? All right. Keep kicking. But if you just surrender and praise and thank God for the things he hasn't taken away from you, you might just find yourself in a state of contentment. But the problem is we need to actively trust in God's sovereignty and wisdom if we want to be set free by His grace. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Here's another example of how God knows why He is doing certain things. And His grace is what's best for you. We need to actively trust in God's sovereignty and wisdom if we want to be set free by His grace. Deuteronomy 8.1 All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that He might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. The attorney would say, God, it wasn't fair that you let them be hungry. You're God. Why did you do that to them? 
I mean, this was a real test, people. <laughs> How many of you have like, not eaten for a half a day and you're like, want to kill somebody? Or you're cranky, <laughs> right? You, you know the feeling? Now imagine, you know, really not eating for a couple of days. Or imagine having no water for a couple of days. Why would God do this to these people? That's not fair. Or does God know all things and is working something out in them? Look again in verse 3. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Without being hungry, without certain thorns in our lives, the Lord cannot teach us certain things because we're egocentric and we'll stay in the way. That's all there is to it. We need to be hungry. We need thorns or we're just going to stay in the way and be miserable. So he's getting us through the fire. He's bringing us through the fire, through these processes, where on the other side is this thing called contentment. If, by getting us out of the way through suffering, we then surrender to his sovereignty. Look at verse 16. Same chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 16. In the wilderness... He fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. But Lord, it doesn't make sense. I'm starving. There's no water. I'm dying of thirst, Lord. Why didn't you just kill us in Egypt? Doesn't make sense to the human perspective. What does God say? I need to humble you and test you to do good for you in the end. It's going to be to your good to come out of this on the other side. So do you believe that about your suffering? Make it personal. Do you believe that about your thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, physical, mental, emotional, family, I don't know, people, whatever your thorn in the flesh, do you believe that verse 16 is to do good for you in the end? Do you believe God? Do you believe in his sovereignty and his wisdom? It's an issue of surrendering to the Lord in faith. That's what it keeps coming back to, folks. It's an issue of trusting in his wisdom and sovereignty. And by that and only that will we be set free from our egocentric selves, miserable selves. Think about it. It's pure arrogance to challenge the sovereign God of the universe and question his ways and his wisdom. No matter what he decrees to happen in our lives, he has a reason for allowing it. On the board regarding the essence of God. The essence of God is offensive to the person averse to all of his grace. They say things like, how can a loving God crush his own son or any human being for that matter? This is a person who doesn't understand God or his love. This is also a person that doesn't trust God or his love. It's lacking faith that God's grace does what's best for us and that God's grace is sufficient. So you might have to go through that swing of uh, perspective or even emotions that Paul went through in 2 Corinthians 12. You know, why this tormenting? Lord, take it away from me. And then most gladly I will accept this because your grace is sufficient. So this includes trusting that God has a plan and an ultimate benefit to our sufferings to do good for us in the end. We as humans don't have the ability to understand all that God is doing in our lives. It's not possible. So stop trying to understand everything. Stop trying to uh, feel that you even have to know everything, that you have to make sense of everything. You don't. 
Be set free from that. Have the faith of a child, remember. My dad can do all things. My dad owns a cattle on a thousand hills, right? I mean, what does a child say? How does a child view his father? He just knows and trusts that his father is in control. Go in, in your Bibles again to Romans 11.32. We were here on Sunday. Romans 11.32. We don't have the ability to understand everything God's doing, and we don't need to understand everything. For God has shut up all in disobedience. All right, stop there. What does a sophomore say? Gee, that's not nice. Is that fair of God? Why did he shut me up in disobedience? I wasn't that bad. Isn't that what the attorney argues? That's not nice. (laughs) Or is that fair? And then look at the rest of it. So that he may show mercy to all. Oh, now I like that. Okay, I guess it's okay with me now, God, that you shut us all up in disobedience because you're going to show mercy to all. Do do we have to see the result to trust in the first part of the statement? This goes for all life, whatever the thing going on in your life might be. Do you have to see the result to trust in the statement that he makes in your life? If the statement is, I'm going to shut you up in disobedience right now, do you have to see the rest of the sentence to trust him? Or do you trust him that he's a God of mercy? And that in his timing, he can relieve you if he wants to. If not, I'll see you in heaven, right? Do we really have to see the second half of the statement to trust him? On the board, will you continue to be the arrogant person that has to know the why before you trust our omniscient God? Look at Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. How about just resting on that? How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who was first, has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It takes faith, folks. It takes childlike faith to stop questioning the ways that God sees is best for us. On the board, faith makes things clear to those who possess it. God is who he says he is. This is the grace that an arrogant person cannot receive, and therefore he remains in frustration regarding the things of God. Again, faith makes things clear to those that possess it. God is who he says he is. He's perfect. This is the grace that an arrogant person cannot receive, and therefore he remains in frustration regarding the things of God. And we're all on a different scale on this. I mean, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the Word of God. We're all, no one's there yet. We're all in a different place on this uh, scale, I guess. But it's to our own misery when we remain arrogant and don't trust in His sovereignty, when we don't surrender to His sovereignty. Again, if a man wants to continue to kick against the prickers, well, he should expect nothing but wounds and scars. Only, only surrendering to God's sovereignty will set us free. On the board again regarding the essence of God, man never has the right to put God on trial. If man fails to comprehend why God does the things he does, we ought never contest his sovereign right to do so. Because what does God's grace do? God's grace does 
what's best for us. Doesn't mean we agree. Doesn't mean we understand it. But we know God's grace does what's best for us. So we ought never contest his sovereign right to do so either. Or worse, propose that he is in contention with himself the way we are with him. Again, man has to change his perspective to God's perspective if he wants to be set free. On the board, God is immutable. Another reason to trust or to surrender to his sovereignty. God is immutable. He doesn't change. Hebrews 13, 8 and 9a. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away with varied and strange teachings. And in James 1.17b, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's our God. And to get a little bit deeper, the Spirit had us think about this. If there's no sequence in God's existence, no time construct that God is like slave to, then there's no changing of God's mind. So-called changes of mind in Scripture is from the perspective of or for the perspective of man. But why would God ever have to truly, honestly change his mind if there's no time that he's slave to? Remember, God is a perfect being. He's the great I am, remember? I am. That means life exists. He is. He's a perfect being. And he's always been and always will be. So he never misses anything like we do. And so we trust him even more. God, I know your grace is doing what's best for me. As the Spirit's been encouraging us, we need to just step back. Stop being so mechanical. Start focusing on God himself instead of his attributes or even his commands as individual bitwise categorical doctrines. Instead of thinking of assembly lines and gears, think of synchronicity and being. He's perfect. He's pure. Perfectly pure. Perfectly in harmony at all times. It's then that we can have faith in who He is. And when we have faith in who He is, we can then trust whatever He does. We don't have to see the second half of the statement. We can see the first half, even though it might seem unfair to our perspective, and say, oh, wait a minute, God's perfect. He's got a reason. I'll wait to see the mercy on the other side. And that brings him tremendous glory. So back to grace perspective. God's grace is what's best for you. Not what's best to you, in your opinion, Not what you think God's grace should look like. God's grace is what's best for you. When perceived as for you, you understand that His will be done. However, when perceived as to you, you understand falsely that your will be done. God's grace, God's opinion of His grace doesn't have to match our opinion of His grace. What He calls grace is true grace. We don't have to say, oh, okay, okay I agree, that, that, that looks like grace to me. Do you really want God's grace to look right to you from your perspective? I mean, we should be begging God, you know, don't let that happen. I want, I want whatever you say is your grace, awesome, because you have it all seen and figured out. <laughs> the sophomore would say, oh, That's God's grace right there because that's how I would do it. Back to that egocentric thing. Oh, but that's not God's grace because that's not how I would do it. Right? The foolishness of man. How can we say something like that ever, if you think about it, with the limited scope we have, the limited perspective we have? All right, think of this analogy again, and pastors used this in, in the past. We can barely see out the small window of a train that we're on. You're on a train, it's moving, and you've got this little, (laughs) 
whatever, 12 by 12 window in front of you, and you're looking out the window and you see trees going by, right? You might see a seagull. Well, I don't know why a seagull, but a bird. <laughs> you see something go by. <laughs> it talks you like that one, huh? You look out this little tiny window, <laughs> and you see almost nothing. Now, how much more, hold it together, Brenda, how much more reality is there to, to what, than to what you see right now out that window? And yet, that's your perspective. <laughs> the seagull. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but, so again, picture how limited we are to God. So you're looking out this little window with a train. God's standing on top of the train. So he sees the whole panorama that you don't see, and he sees up above, right? That's the difference. <laughs> Come on, DJ, hold it together. I'm, I'm just kidding. That's the difference, though, really. That's the extreme difference between our perspective and God's perspective. Extreme, totally, ugh, totally different. And here we are as man claiming to have a say in what we recognize God's grace to be. So let's move on before <laughs> some of you pass out or something. Holy, <laughs> holy different perspectives. A righteous person seeks to reconcile to God's perfect will. An unrighteous person desires that God's will reconcile to their own. This is the extremes here. And nowhere has this been more exemplified or amplified than our ongoing discussions regarding the gospel proper. A righteous person seeks to reconcile to God's perfect will in humility. An unrighteous person desires that God's will reconcile to their own. Now, as we close, we only got a few minutes left. This includes the whole discussion on the watered-down, accommodating gospel. It's unrighteous for man to say, this is how I view it, or this is how I'd like salvation to be. So I'm going to bring God down to my level of my comfort zone, to my likings and my standards, and that's going to be my salvation. And if that's your salvation, well, now you have to change the definition of what grace is, too, to match it. And that's what people do to God. That's what watering down the gospel does. It's unrighteous. It's God changing the gospel. I'm God. I'm sorry. People, man, changing the gospel to be what he, he likes and what he's comfortable with. And it's just a horrible thing. So on life and death, if God makes us alive in Christ, we can never die again, can we? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6.2 A gospel that subtracts from God's will or grace at salvation leaves room for believers, quote-unquote, living in sin after salvation. In other words, it basically says, ah, it's okay. God doesn't really have to change you. If you're not ready, don't worry. Don't worry. Just believe in Jesus in case. And you're saying that God... You're saying that person doesn't need to surrender to God. You're saying, stay the way you are. Keep doing the things you're doing. Don't, in other words, don't change your heart. Don't think you even have to change your heart. I might be exaggerating here, but I hope you get the point. How does this get applied to life on the board? Man seeks to impose his will over God's. He wants God to accommodate him and then call it grace. But you see, that's not grace, God's grace at all. It's a perversion. God's grace accommodates his perfect righteousness to his glory. And that brings us to a key point from Sunday on the board regarding grace and works. Man is born egocentric. So much so that he supposes his own definition of salvation is the one that needs satisfying. That's how bad man is. His own definition of salvation is the one that needs satisfying. The only way to construct such a salvation is to suppose his own definition for grace. As grace goes, so goes his definition for what grace produces, namely works. And the whole system is a perversion of man. 
This is why when giving the gospel to someone, I no longer like to use the phrase, all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is. Why not? Isn't that true, strictly speaking? But that language gives the impression of accommodating others. You know what? Don't, don't worry. You're not ready to change your mind? All right, don't, don't worry about that. All you have to do is. It's a big deal to turn in your soul from self to Christ. It's a big deal. It's a major reckoning in the soul. There couldn't be a bigger deal, right? On the board. It's a big deal to trust in Christ from the heart. It's not a light-hearted decision. And that's why we must be careful of using light-hearted language when presenting the gospel. Again, trusting in Christ from the heart is not a light-hearted decision. And that's why we must be careful of using light-hearted language. If we use language that subtly suggests that salvation is an easy, accommodating decision to them, to stay right where you are in your life and in your heart, just accept Jesus on the side, even though you're not ready to submit, surrender, well, we're doing a disservice to others, as I think we know by now, misleading them to think God accommodates them. But Christ himself never did that. Salvation is simple, but it's not easy, as we've been learning. It's a heart decision. It involves a conscious repentance from sin and a humility in turning to Christ alone as Lord and Savior. And by the way, where do you see that language in the Bible? All you have to do is dot, dot, dot. The Lord and his disciples presented the clear, plain decision before man. But it was never presented as easy. It was presented as a big decision, a real decision, to change, change one's mind and heart from where it currently was. From self and depending on self to depending on Christ. So that's why true faith a true turning to Christ from the heart results in wonderful changes in a person's life. Because when someone really does turn in that way to, to Christ and surrender and realize and admit they can't save themselves and they need him desperately, when someone does that, makes that decision, that's when God changes them because they're humble, right? And now guess what? Fruit has to come because they've now been changed. They're brand new. God gave them a new creature, a piece of Christ, if you will, in them. The life of Christ in them. And now, everything changes. That's why James 2.17 on the board. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The person that recognizes God's grace at salvation... The person that turns from self and relies on Christ to save them, they're changed immediately and forever by God, by God's hand on them. And that results in something divinely good happening in their lives. And that's totally unlike the person that wants their own version of grace or salvation to their flesh's liking. So I guess we'll close with this point on the board regarding grace and works. Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ, manufacturing a different gospel. This false gospel may proclaim grace because it is more accommodating, but it is a deceptive trap. May we be careful, like of how we present Right? That's what the Lord's been teaching us for about 15 months now. The fullness of the gospel, how do we present the gospel so that it's not some lighthearted decision that's on the side of your current life that you want to keep? 
It's a real decision. More accommodating does not mean more grace. In fact, it takes away from God's grace and power in the lives of others. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, Lord, we're very grateful again for this time and your word and the guidance of your spirit. We ask, Father, that you help us apply these things in our own souls, help us bring these truths out correctly to a lost and dying world that needs to hear the truth, that needs to hear the heart of Christ. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen.